It wasn't just land that Native Americans lost as the United States expanded over the past 240-some years. The original inhabitants of what's now this country also lost water. Tribes have long fought to regain the ability to use lakes, rivers, streams, and springs to continue their traditional ways of life. And some have won. But as water becomes increasingly scarce, farmers have become more and more aggressive. And now, the far right is involved. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs becomes the first federal agency to make COVID-19 vaccines for health workers mandatory. Tunisian President Kais Sayed assumes emergency powers in what opponents are decrying as a power grab in the North African nation. And it actually rained in Southern California yesterday. Mother Nature obviously listens to the Times and wanted to punk us during drought week. Good one, Mom. Today, in episode two of Drought Week, we go to Southern Oregon to Upper Klamath Lake. As water shortages continue to become a permanent part of life in the American West, battles are brewing everywhere for what little remains, even long verdant areas like the Beaver State. The tribes want water kept in Upper Klamath Lake to protect the small fish important to their culture, but farmers are angry because they're not getting any water this year. Now, militia members are coming in to try and exploit the tension. Anita Chabrier covers Northern California for the LA Times and also the far-right movement in the American West. Anita, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Upper Klamath Lake. Describe the area around it and how its water is traditionally split up. It's really a part of the very northernmost edge of California. So it's just above the border of California into Oregon. And there's a lot of farmland there, a lot of beautiful mountains. It's a very lovely area that's anchored around the Upper Klamath Lake, which is this lake that's important to both farmers and the tribes up there. It's a very shallow lake. It's only about six feet deep, but 20 miles across in certain places. So it's really the heart of the community in that area. And then from that lake, you start getting different canals, irrigation districts, just taking all that water and spreading it to farms. So after the World Wars, the U.S. government auctioned off land. They gave land to veterans in what they called the Klamath Reclamation Project. And the Reclamation Project actually took some lakes and some wetland areas that are south of Upper Klamath Lake, drained them, and turned them into homesteads into farms that are fed by a very elaborate system of canals coming out of Upper Klamath Lake. And that's really where the dispute is for those farmers in the area known as the project who rely on Upper Klamath Lake water to come down those canals to their farms. Every spring, the farmers wait to hear from the federal government about how much water they will get. It's a time of high anxiety while the government decides what it actually has to to give to the farmers. And so this year, as soon as it came out that the answer to that question was going to be zero, that's when you really saw the extremism ramp up and farmers getting very angry. So how bad is a drought right now? It is terrible. It is multi-year up there of really reduced or no water. This year, the farmers are getting zero water. So they're not going to get anything from their farms other than what they can take out of ground wells, which of course is not sustainable. 
About 20 years ago, they had a cutoff like this as well. But really, between those 20 years, this is as bad as it's been. And the Klamath tribes don't actually own that water from Upper Klamath Lake, but they have certain rights that supersede those of the farmers. How does that work out? They're called senior water rights. And as with all things water, it's very, very complicated. But basically, they have a treaty with the U.S. government because, of course, they're a sovereign nation. And that treaty ensures that they will have a certain variety of fish that are sacred to them in order to uh, harvest those fish. It's the schwam and the koptu. They're two kinds of what we call sucker fish that are very central economically to the tribes. They have subsisted off of them for centuries and, and thousands and thousands of years, really. And the schwam is also central to the creation story of the tribes. And so it holds a very sacred position in their culture. When the lake level drops too far, those fish can't spawn. They can't survive. And therefore, they have senior water rights to protect the fish. We'll be right back. Anita, farmers have been clashing with the federal government over water rights, going back to days of colonialism and the Wild West. And you mentioned earlier that there was a bad water shortage in Upper Klamath Lake back in 2001. Here's a federal official talking about the matter back then. Given the severity of the drought and the requirements of the Endangered Species Act at this point, there simply is no water available for either the farmers or for the wildlife refuges up in the Klamath Basin this year. And back then, farmers ended up illegally getting into the lake water. Here's that same federal official from 2001 describing what the farmers did. A number of people made about 150 yards of what appears to be about six-inch irrigation pipe and began pumping water out of Upper Klamath Lake and around uh, a small dam. And that water then is flowing back into the canal on the other side of the dam. Anita, what do farmers feel like they deserve? Farmers genuinely believe that the government is stealing their water. So even the farmers who are not radical, even the more moderate farmers up there, believe that they are being wronged by the government and that the government does not have the right to withhold the water it's holding. So there is a more radical fringe. And as you pointed out, it's the same group that was involved 20 years ago. They've pitched a circus tent at the point where the equipment is that turns on the water for the canals. Big top, red and white stripes that's lined with constitutional quotes on the inside. And one of the farmers who's running it is living there in a big RV. So there's someone there 24 hours a day. And all that separates it from the machinery that turns on the canals is an unguarded chain link fence. So they are very, very close to it. They know how to get to that chain link fence. And actually, the technology has changed over the years, so they need a crane in order to remove these massive gates that block the water. And as of a few weeks ago, they said that they have purchased that crane. And they are threatening to once again take that by force. But even the farmers who are not engaging in that radicalism this time around really do have a mistrust and an anger at government. Do they not think that this uh, treaty that the government has with the Klamath tribes, that it's valid? 
It gets into states' rights. It's a very interesting argument. They believe that the state owns the water and the federal government does not have the right to supersede state rights. So they're trying to get Oregon to uh, exert its authority over the federal government. Courts for decades have said it is not the way it works. So I think it's a very, very slim legal chance there. But in their hearts, they believe it. Have they ever tried to go to the Klamath tribes and say, hey, look, Our common enemy is a federal government. We would have far better water management if we try to go to the state and say, take over the water rights. Well, in 2015, there was actually an intensely complicated and controversial deal worked out between all the players. And it ended up not getting funded by Congress. So it fell apart. And after it fell apart, the Klamath tribes had some very significant legal wins that really solidified their senior water rights. So for the tribes, there's not a whole lot of reason to come to the table because they're they're in the power position at the moment. And they want to protect the ecosystem and they want to protect their culture and they want to protect their rights. So that power dynamic has really shifted. And that's something that's also feeding the tensions in the area is the farmers feel they're the underdogs. And you wrote about in your article also is it's stoking racial tensions. This whole idea, again, we're playing out what happened in the days of the West where native tribes are holding on to what's theirs while the newcomers are saying, y'all are natives. You don't deserve this because you're mismanaging it. And we as American, quote unquote, Americans would do a better job at it. And it's also ours. I just don't think you can separate racism from environmental justice when it comes to the American West. It really just is very deep and goes back to the first time white settlers came in the area. But what I do think is interesting and what you hear tribes members say is that things don't change so fast in Oregon as they have in the rest of the country. So basic conversations that we're having about race and people in places like Los Angeles, those are really radical concepts in Oregon. And even the farmers I meet who are sympathetic to the tribes and who want to work with them don't always really see that aspect of racism as real. I hear a lot when I'm up there, it's the race card. That is their worldview. And so I think that that is something that's very hard for the tribes to overcome anytime soon. But now you have far-right leaders like Ammon Bundy, former militia leader who helped lead an occupation on federal land in Oregon just a couple of years ago over the rights of ranchers then. At least that's what he said. Bundy's message now is resonating with farmers with this idea that the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which manages water rights across the country, shouldn't be making those decisions. So how is this playing out with the farmers, like even with the moderate farmers that you were talking about up in Klamath? It's a really interesting split because the moderate farmers do not want Ammon Bundy there. They believe that it's a recipe for disaster, that he's capitalizing off of their issues for his own purposes, and they want him out. But last year, Ammon Bundy started an organization called People's Rights that is kind of this grassroots, off-the-grid, states' rights, sovereign nation kind of organization. And those folks are very, very organized, very anti-government, and they're the ones who are in this tent predominantly threatening to take over power. So this time around, 20 years ago, that tent was full of farmers who wanted to take action. This time, it's fewer farmers, more people's rights, more far right. And I think that that's what makes it such a volatile mix at this moment, is that you have these outsiders who've come in willing to take matters into their own hands. As someone who covers the far right, are you starting to see more of these water battles across the American West? 
Absolutely. I think climate change is going to drive extremism. That's my personal take on it from covering these things. You are seeing desperation across the American West. You're seeing family farmers. I feel sorry for these farmers. They are not able to grow crops. And if they can't grow crops, they don't have money. And you get really desperate when you can't feed your family, right? No matter who you are. And I think that as long as the drought continues, as long as our climate crisis continues, you're going to see people grow more and more desperate. Thank you so much for this interview, Anita. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, the Klamath tribes weathered the latest attempt to take their water. Stay tuned. Don Gentry is chairman of the Klamath tribes. Earlier this year, he and other leaders successfully defended their tribal rights to water in an Oregon circuit court. Don, welcome to the Times. Warkwisi, that's greetings in the Klamath language. Can you give us the lay of the land and the relationship that your tribes have with Upper Klamath Lake? Klamath Lake is in uh, our traditional Aboriginal homeland. It's actually uh, a prehistoric Klamath area, and it's a part of uh, where we have our rights to exercise, fishing, hunting, trapping, all reserved to the Treaty of 1864. So we have uh, treaty rights that we reserved that were to be ours forever. And if you know our history, tragic history, uh, the Federal Termination Act terminated the Klamath tribes in 1954, and we eventually lost our homeland. But our rights to hunt, fish, trap, and gather free of state and federal regulation have survived the courts. And we also have water rights from the Adair case flowing from that treaty. Basically, uh, the whole principle is, is uh, to have rights that are worthwhile, you need to have the resources to exercise those rights on the fish, wildlife, plants. And the courts have affirmed that we have enough right to maintain water in stream, in Klamath Lake, in the marshes, in the rivers, to provide for our fisheries and other treaty resources. So that's where we're at right now. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation announced in May that over a thousand farmers in the Klamath Basin wouldn't get any reserved water at all from Upper Klamath Lake because of this drought. And a lot of them are saying, hey, this is going to ruin our livelihoods. We need some water. We can't exist with no water at all. What would be your response to the farmers' concern? It is unfortunate that we're in this serious situation, you know, and it affects folks' uh, finances and way of life and affects the economy regionally here. And uh, so, I mean, I can feel for that loss. I mean, we've suffered a lot of loss in the past, and we know what that's like, having uh, your feet jerked off from you in some respects. But this has been an ongoing problem. The drought has surfaced again. There hasn't been enough water for ag to operate sustainably for a number of years, especially when you consider the needs of the fish upstream and downstream. It's unfortunate that we're here, but hopefully uh, you know, there will be a real focus on looking at the real problems. I think we've crossed the threshold of what's been sustainable, and especially if we continue in a dry period as a result of climate change, we need to really hit that head on. And unfortunately, uh, folks want to continue doing business as usual, so to speak, to do that, you know, that's the thing that's really difficult for me in the tribes is we're the problem. You know, we're looked at as a problem and the solution. If the tribes would just quit making a call on our water rights and just give up on the endangered fish, we can continue doing what we're doing. And it's just to a point where that's not possible. 
There are farmers who try to say that the Klamath River tribes only care about the water in so much that it takes care of these fish, the schwam. But as you told my colleague, Anita Chabrier, the schwam is important to the tribes, yes, but that non-members should also care about its fate as well. Oh, yes. It's been an exercise of folks to try to marginalize the importance of the fish and importance of the Klamath tribes in our treaty rights because we're at odds and somehow are perceived as the enemy. All that we're trying to do is protect the water in the stream that provides for the health of the ecosystem and sustainability of the fish. You know, we're at odds with those folks. So what they do is try to make it sound like the fish aren't important or uh, the Klamath tribes aren't important, or at least not as important as us in irrigated agriculture. So we're definitely at odds. And you describe the Schwam as the canary in the coal mine. If they're not taken care of and if they start disappearing, then there's not much time left for the rest of us. Yeah, that's an indication as hardy and strong as the fish are. And even to live in Klamath Lake, which has been shallow and warms up every year, if they're basically on the blink of extinction, it indicates that things are seriously wrong in the watershed. And uh, we know that uh, the things that man have done in terms of developing, diking and draining, the Everglades of the West, and then on the tributaries to the lake, the streams have unraveled and eroded and contributed nutrients into the Klamath Lake that caused the poor water quality problems we have. So it's more than the quantity of water, it's the quality of water also. Yeah, the Klamath tribes have had to fight against people who want their water for like 160 years at this point. But the last big fight was in the early 2000s. Here's tape of a farmer from back then. We figure on doing it till we get our water back. And we are doing it peacefully. We are hoping very much that somebody doesn't come in from the other side and cause trouble to make us stop. But a lot of the people who wanted water weren't peaceful. Klamath tribes members were spat upon. A school was shot at with shotguns. There were bumper stickers ridiculing the Schwam. Don, how are the tensions right now? I mean, it's just an ugly feeling driving by and seeing signs out there. Obviously, one-sided you know, even invitation that Ammon Bundy was going to come. And it's been put in the paper that they're friends of his and had communications with them. And yeah, it feels ugly, you know, hoping that it wouldn't really escalate to a point to where it did in 2001, and it hasn't. Thankful for that. Younger members of your tribes have been more outspoken about the racism that goes into these water fights and say maybe previous generations. They say they're inspired by Black Lives Matter and other social justice movements. How are you seeing them taking up the fight for water rights different from, say, your generation? Yeah, well, I think it's the breath of fresh air. I think it's long needed. We just have this terrible history where we've been marginalized in our own homeland for so long with uh, non-native contact or reservation area and oppressive Indian agents and, you know, boarding schools. And we haven't felt safe to have an opinion that's contrary to significant portions of the community. So what we're doing, we're trying to hold on to the remnant of what should be here, the created place here for all mankind. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, you're very welcome. Now to the Tokyo Olympics. Faster, higher, stronger. And we're not talking about the COVID pandemic. 
All week, we're hearing from members of the U.S. Olympic squad, all from different sports, all with different dreams, ready to compete against the best in the world. I'm Nick Itkin. I'm 21 years old from Los Angeles, California, and I'm competing in fencing for the men's foil event. There's three weapons. I do foil, and that's when the target area is in the front and the back. So there's a referee, and he's the one who's calling whose touch it was. That's the one that I do. And there's Epe. In Epe, it's the simplest one to understand. The target area is everywhere, and it's just if you hit, you get a point. A saber is the one where you target is anything above the torso. So those are the three different weapons. Usually, as a kid, you kind of just choose one, and that's the one that you stick to. My dad is Michael Aitken. He's been training me since I was seven years old. He's like a co-owner of a fencing club in West LA. It's called Los Angeles International Fencing Center. My dad used to be a fencer. My family's all from Ukraine, so it's like a little bit more popular there, I'd say. So that's kind of how he started fencing. And even my sister is born in Ukraine, so they came here and it wasn't as popular, but they didn't have like much money or anything, but they came with a very successful fencing club. And that's kind of how I started getting into it. And the club grew a lot as the sport grew. That's definitely a, a unique situation to have it as a coach, but there's definitely some advantages. It's just very motivating and it's probably different to a normal environment. Fencing goes on like with your coach, you probably just communicate about fencing during practice. But for me, it's like fencing during practice and after practice. So it's a big part of our lives for sure. Uh, I feel like it's kind of every kid's dream in the back of the head, but when I was around 15 or 16, I started getting better results, and that's when I really had that dream and started focusing on it a lot more. And around ni like 19, I made the senior team, and that's when we started battling for an Olympic spot, and that's when it was really competitive. I'm a really young fencer, so most of my teammates are many years older than me, like 28, 29, 30, so I'm a young fencer, I have a lot to improve. So I took my year off 2020 when the Olympics was supposed to happen. I just wanted to focus on training at all that year and not have any obstacles with academics. I was in great shape and I was ready to compete. And then all of a sudden everything started closing down and the tournament got canceled. And I didn't really know where to go from there. And then there was just a huge break. So I wasn't even able to train very much and I wasn't sure when the next competition was going to be. I didn't know what was going on and I was unclear on what to do. But eventually there was more information and the Olympic Games getting postponed gave me more motivation just to get back into it. A lot of sports like track are the first sports that people probably think of, but fencing has been, uh, it was the first five sports that were in the Olympics. So it's been in the Olympics for a really long time. And the older fencers, like my teammates, have done a really good job of, of advertising themselves and making the sport more interesting. The sport is growing, and I think it's on the right trajectory, and hopefully the goal is to make it available to more and more people so that it become more and more popular. There's a, a big motivation for younger kids for colleges since they offer scholarships for, like, really good schools. I just wish more people would get into it and maybe fall in love with it like I did.
Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. Listen to each episode of The Times all the way to the end this week and hear more of the U.S. athletes going for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics gold. And don't forget, there's no such thing as fourth place unless you're a New Daily Podcast. that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, as we continue drought week, we check in on some of the most beloved plants of the American Southwest. Guess what? They're not getting enough water. Ugh. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our editors are Lauren Rabb and Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown, and our theme music is by Andrew Ipin. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. Gracias.